Our Father, we do give you thanks for your word. Lord, and we trust that you, by your Holy Spirit, do continue to speak to us today through your word. And so we ask that you would do that just now. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts bless your name, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Familiarity is something that is very comforting to us as human beings. Uh, in fact, as a rule of thumb, we tend to stick to things that are familiar, with, familiar to us. It's why many of us, even as we come to church uh, week by week, we tend to gravitate towards the same seats, don't we, every time? You know who you are. It's why generally we're, we're creatures of habit. Unless we work a, a sort of unpredictable shift patterns, we tend to have the same routine week after week, even as Marty was saying this morning, day after day, mealtime after mealtime, going to the same places on the same days, the same shops over and over again, we walk and drive the same routes. We have particular viewing habits on TV. Some people even go again and again to the same holiday destinations. And this isn't a, a bad thing. I'm not criticizing anybody. Um, sometimes you'll hear somebody described as a creature of habit. Don't you hear that? But the truth is, to a certain extent, all of us are creatures of habit. And again, it, this isn't a bad thing. We go to the same shops because we know we'll get the things that we want there. We go to the same restaurants because we like the food or we want to support that business. We keep going to the same hairdresser because we trust them and we've built up that trust. Some of us, though, are inclined to do new things and be a bit more adventurous, to try new restaurants or new recipes at home, new holiday destinations, places off the beaten track. And the reasons we do that are, are really fascinating. And that's how some of us get that little kick of dopamine to make us feel better. Some of us are inclined to seek out that adrenaline rush more than others. But even if you're an adventurous person, it's generally the case that you are a creature of habit and that those moments are the exception. Most days, your routine is the same. Most of the food you eat is familiar to you. It's not a bad thing. It's how we're designed to be. We find rote and routine and patterns to be soothing and comforting. But do you ever get that feeling of deja vu? I had it this morning when Marty started giving his sermon. I thought, I've heard that somewhere before. And then I realized it was the start of my sermon this evening, talking about routines and all that sort of stuff. I thought, Marty, I'm going to kill you. But you know that feeling when, you, when you've been somewhere or seen something or someone before, even though you don't think you actually have been there or seen it before. Apparently the reason for it is that, well, maybe we have been there before and we've forgotten, or more often than not, it's because of our dreams. We've dreamt something or, or about someone who is very similar to what we see in front of us, and that's why it triggers that memory in your brain. But because we don't remember our dreams, it feels a bit weird because it's in there somewhere, but we can't find it. It's a memory even though we don't think of it as a memory because it was a dream. But I have to say that tonight's uh, sermon might feel something like a bit of deja vu for some of you if you've been here for the last six weeks. Uh, but don't worry, you haven't been dreaming in that time, hopefully. The thing about tonight's sermon actually is that some of this we've been here before. Tonight we've made it to the letter G. We've made it to the New Testament at last. We're talking about God and his world, God becoming a human being. In other words, we're talking about Jesus. But in the past six weeks, while we've been looking through the Old Testament, 
you've probably noticed that we've always had a reading from the New Testament as well to help us see how it all fits together as part of the bigger picture. And if you haven't been here, um, don't worry because I'm going to recap those. In session one, we, we saw God's promise to make a very good world with people living under God's rule. And we saw this promise realized, we read from John chapter one, Jesus is that creator God through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's the one who brings us into this kingdom as his children, which will ultimately be in the new creation under his rule, the new life he gives us. In session two, we, we saw the fall, but that fall came with a promise that God would send someone to defeat the serpent, to defeat the devil and death. And so we looked at Jesus in Luke chapter four as one who has authority over evil spirits and therefore over the devil and over the result of the devil's work, death. In session three, we thought about the idea of covenant and saw that God promised to bring people from all over the world through Abraham into his kingdom. And then we saw in John 8 how Jesus identifies himself as the one who will bring that blessing. He said to those religious leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced at the sight of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And of course, they were furious about that. Then in session four, we looked at God's people being delivered from judgment in the Passover. We thought about the Lord's Supper and the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make as that great Passover lamb to save his people from judgment, dying in their place. Next, we look at David as king of Israel and God's promise to him to give an eternal king as one of his descendants to lead his people. And we saw that Jesus fulfills that. The very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, Jesus is identified as the son of David. And later on, we see Peter's realization that he is the Christ, which is a, a royal title because Christ means anointed one and kings are anointed. And then last week in session six, we saw how the, how the prophets pointed Jesus and how God promised through them to bring his people into fullness of life beyond judgment. And that became possible because of the cross. I think I got it all in. So as we've looked through all of the Old Testament, or the, the parts that we've looked at anyway, the name of Jesus isn't mentioned, it's not mentioned once, but Jesus is the common thread. He's the one who holds it all together, who makes it make sense. There's so much more that we haven't done in the Old Testament, some of which you may remember if you've been around for a while uh, when we were doing the Bible project way back when we did that. The sacrifices that were made on behalf of the people in the book of Leviticus we looked at, the sin offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, all of which point to the offering Jesus would make on the cross for us. In Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses that he will raise up a prophet with God's words in his mouth. And John 5:45, Jesus says explicitly that Moses was speaking about him. You might remember maybe more freshly in the memory, a couple of months ago, we looked at Elijah and Elisha, and we thought about this great pattern in scripture of one who prepares the way. Moses led the people of Egypt out of Egypt, or, or the people of Israel, sorry, out of Egypt, but he never made it to the promised land. God raised up Joshua, who was greater than Moses, and finally brought them there. Elijah was a great prophet who spoke against the prophets of Baal and against King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel. 
But it was Elisha actually who rose up after him to completely eradicate Baal worship in Israel for a time anyway. And so John the Baptist came, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was near, calling people to repent, and Jesus comes after him to bring that kingdom about and to call people to follow him. There are so many more examples in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, but I hope you get the idea. It seems overly simple to say it's about Jesus, but it is, and it is that simple. There's a little um, children's Bible that we have um, at home. It's a little bit um, old for our girls, but they like to listen to it sometimes. And the tagline is this. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. The tagline, every story whispers his name. And it's so true. It, It all points to him. Sometimes it is a whisper. Sometimes it's a shout, but it's always all about him, the creator, the rescuer, the prophet, the priest, and king, Jesus. And the apostle Peter gets this. We read tonight from Luke 9, um, words that we actually read from Matthew 16 a few weeks ago, that he recognizes that he is the one, that he is the Christ of God. He's God's Messiah. It's hardly any wonder uh, if you look at the evidence that Peter had in front of him The chapter before in Luke chapter 8, Jesus has calmed the storm, proving that he is the creator with power over creation. The chapter before that in Luke 7, Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead, proving that he is the one who has authority over death. And it's interesting actually at that point that even the, the crowd around him say, a great prophet has appeared among us. That's in Luke 7, 16 because both Elijah and Elisha raised widows' sons from the dead. Before that, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus heals a lame man. He demonstrates that he has power to forgive sins. You know that story, the lame man, he comes in and he says, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders aren't happy about it. And Jesus said, well, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, roll up your mat, get up and go home. But to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, roll up your mat go home, and it happens. Jesus heals a leper in Luke 5, bringing him from outside of God's people, shunned, to being part of God's people again, showing that he is the one, he's the descendant of Abraham, who will bring bring blessing to all people, even those outside the kingdom. And on several occasions, and we thought about the example in Luke 4, Jesus shows that he has authority over demons and evil, and he also resists the temptation of the devil. All the pointers are there, and I know that we're often very critical of Peter. He often gets a bad rap and a bad press from preachers, but he puts all the pieces together. You're the Christ of God, he says. You're the Messiah. But there is a bit of a twist in this tale, because it would be reasonable to expect that if Jesus is the Messiah, this royal anointed one, if he's the the son of David, then surely we would expect him to be on the throne in Israel. And I know we know more of the story than that, but if you think about it logically from where we've been in the Old Testament, that would make sense. But it's not what happens. And we get a glimpse of this in the parable of the tenants. It's a pretty uh, straightforward parable with pretty straightforward meaning. God is the owner of a vineyard. That symbolizes that he is the true king of Israel. The owner of the vineyard, he rents it out. 
That symbolizes that, that before he appears himself in the flesh as Jesus, he lets other people govern Israel. And the owner of the vineyard sends servants to the vineyard. But those who are running the vineyard beat them, they treat them shamefully, they wound them, and they send them away empty-handed. And this happens several times. And this happens all through Israel's history. God sent his servants, the prophets, to his people, but they mistreated them, they didn't listen to them, they put them out. Again, Elijah is a good example of this. He was prophesying against the prophets of Baal. And eventually, Elijah takes himself out into the wilderness and he asks God to let him die. He thinks he's the only faithful worshiper left. He's the only one who is speaking God's words in his mind and the people won't listen. Israel rejected their prophets again and again and they frequently continued in their sin. So then the owner of the vineyard sends his son. It's probably not too difficult to see that that represents God sending Jesus. And they reject him and kill him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The warning here is very simple again. Reject the son, face the consequences, but accept the son and receive the reward, receive the vineyard. Now this parable isn't about the kingdom being taken away from the Jews, being taken away from Israel and given to Gentiles. Some people say that, but I I don't think that's true. Because remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost and 3,000 people are converted. We looked at that a couple of Sunday mornings ago. They're all Jews. They're all in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. Sometimes this parable is misunderstood as saying that that the kingdom isn't any longer for the Jews, but that's not what it's about. It's about accepting or rejecting the Son, whoever you are. Maybe you've been coming along to church through this series because you're interested and and you want to know how the Bible all fits together and we're most of the way through. Now we only have two more weeks after this one. And you've seen over the last six weeks how the Old Testament all points to Christ. You've had some deja vu tonight as we've recapped all that. But this is what it boils down to. This is what the big picture is. This is how the pieces fit together. Reject the Son reject Jesus, and that will lead to God rejecting you. From before the creation of the world, that that was the plan. Christ was the plan. The sad thing is that those who had the Old Testament, who had the prophets and all those pointers to Jesus Christ, when he arrived, they didn't accept him. And so they were rejected by God, or at least many of them were. And the vineyard, the, the kingdom, the new life as God intended it to be, freedom from sin, living freely as God's children with sins forgiven and all this world can throw at us defeated, all of that is given away to those who do accept the Son. John 1 summarizes it pretty well and these are probably familiar verses. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. He came to his own people. His own people, many of them did not accept him, but to those who did, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the question is, if you've been following this series out of interest, but you're rejecting Christ at the moment, What are you going to do about that? 
Will you accept him? Will you follow him? Because he can give you freedom from sin if you turn and follow him. And he's proved it. And the proof of it is his resurrection. And all of the events that we've looked at in Jesus' life through this little series, the biggest one that we hadn't looked at before tonight was his resurrection. And it's not my intention tonight to delve very deeply into Luke 24, but I do just want to highlight a few things because I think there is enough in the scriptures to give us confidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so he really does therefore have the power to bring us into the family of God. Think about it like this. In verse three, we read simply that his body wasn't in the tomb. There are several witnesses to this. This in and of itself that, that demands an explanation of what happened. Then the angels say he's risen in verses five and six. Jesus himself predicted this would happen as far back as Luke chapter nine, we read those. And if the whole thing was faked, realistically the only people with a motive to do that would be the disciples. It wouldn't really have suited anyone else's agenda. But the disciples are in complete dismay when the women run to them and to tell them the news. And in fact, they, they don't believe it. They were in no mindset to steal the body. The grave clothes are left behind. Again, we, we don't maybe often think about that, but that would be a strange thing. If somebody had moved the body, they wouldn't have taken the time to take the grave clothes off. And grave robbers wouldn't have stopped to take those off and leave them behind. They would have kept them because they'd want anything they could get their hands on. The risen Jesus had flesh and blood. He could be touched. The disciples were invited to put their hands into his wounds. He wasn't a hallucination. He was physically there. The number of people who saw him could not have all had the same hallucination. He ate food. He was a real human body that could eat. In Acts chapter one, we're told he showed them many convincing proofs that he was alive. The Old Testament predicted it all. It predicted that he would die. Isaiah 53 is probably the most famous, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The Old Testament also predicted that he would rise again. David in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And again, in Psalm 22, there's lots of predictions here of Jesus' death and resurrection. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And of course that happened when Jesus was on the cross. But also a glorious future is predicted in Psalm 22. Posterity shall serve him. In other words, he will live. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And those last few words, he has done it, interestingly, could be translated, it is finished, it is done. Because of all this, Jesus says that forgiveness is possible. He told his disciples 
This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And again, we saw that beginning at Jerusalem uh, last Sunday morning. Forgiveness and fullness of life is available in the here and now and the way to this life is repentance. That just means turning away from sin to follow him. And the resurrection is the proof that it is possible. It proves that Jesus is who he said he was and who Peter recognized him as, the Christ. God came into his world. It proves that his words are true and can be trusted. What he said would happen did happen. We can trust everything he said about every part of his life and death and eternity. And we can trust his promises. What is required of us is to repent and follow him. And Jesus gives us a pretty clear picture of what repentance and following him looks like. And here we come back to Luke 9. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self, his soul. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't sound too enticing as it's put there, but Jesus lays it out clearly. Who, we, we who are to follow Jesus are called to follow him, to follow in his footsteps, to deny ourselves, not to do what seems easiest or best for ourselves. This will mean picking up a, a metaphorical cross, potentially being rejected by other people. The world says to us, you know, be yourself. You do you, whatever you feel, or whoever you feel you are, then the world says, no, that, that's you, that's who you are, that's your identity. But Jesus says to follow him, no matter who we are, no matter who we think we are, means to deny ourselves. We will lose ourselves for him. We'll lose our lives for him. We'll be prepared to give up everything in life in order to follow Jesus, just as Jesus gave up everything for his people. And yet the reward will be glorious. We will save our life eternally, just as Jesus lost his life, knowing that there was a future beyond his death. Whoever loses their life for him, letting him be in charge of it, will save it and will have eternal life. And people scoff at this, of course they do. And they scoff at those who believe it. The world is focused on keeping hold of life, grasping whatever we can get in this life. It encourages us to, to concentrate on getting what we can, possessions and experiences and relationships. It thinks it would be crazy to give up those things for someone else, especially when that someone lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. And that makes denying ourselves for Jesus hard. Whoever said it was easy, but that makes it particularly hard. In our social lives, it's hard to deny ourselves and follow Jesus because a lot of people around us aren't doing that simply. It's easier for us to go along with it and to go after what the world wants to offer us. It's difficult in our relationships because we want to be committed to those. Of course we do, we wanna be good friends. We want to love each other. 
but they're not the number one thing in our lives. And that might be difficult for other people to understand. It's difficult at work, where to everyone else, priorities are completely different than we see it. People might not understand, but the reward is glorious. And no matter what we face in this life and in this world, Jesus gives us salvation and nothing can compare to that. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God has fulfilled all his Old Testament promises to his people through Jesus. The creator, the snake crusher, the covenant blessing bringer, the substitutionary lamb, the ever reigning king, and the one foretold by the prophets who gives us life beyond judgment. And we can trust that he is all these things because he rose from the dead in newness of life, proving that he is all these things, the one with all authority. We trust his promises. We give our lives to him, giving up what is easiest or most comfortable or safest or even, seem, or even what seems sensible at times in order to follow him and live under his rule. He is God in his world and he calls us to follow him. I've said a few times tonight that it'll be worth it. The reward is worth it. I want to finish by just um, reading a, a few words from Revelation chapter three. Some of you know I was at the, the graduation ceremony um, of Union College on Friday evening. And um, one of my old professors was, was preaching there and he preached on a passage from Revelation two and three. But I just wanna quote a very, very short bit of it. In, in Revelation chapters two and three, Jesus Christ gives these seven instructions, seven letters to different churches. And in the final one, it's to Laodicea. You may be familiar with it. It's the one where Jesus talks about the Christians being lukewarm. You might've heard a sermon or two about that, about lukewarm Christianity. I know I have. But what often isn't talked about nearly as much, and it should be, are the words at the end of that letter. Listen up. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I'll read that again. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The reward is glorious. For some of you tonight, that may be, you may need to follow Jesus for the first time. And it'll be hard. Denying yourself will be hard. Taking up your cross will be hard. It'll look different for each one of us here tonight. But it'll be worth it. And to those of us who are followers of Christ this evening, the message is very simple. Keep going. Keep going. Because the reward is glorious. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our Father, we give you thanks again for sending Jesus into the world to save sinners like us. Lord, thank you that he was so willing and so gracious and so merciful and obedient to his Father and laying down his life for us. So Lord, help us Help us to follow him. Help us to lay down the things that we cling to in this world and surrender everything to him in following him.
Lord, we know this is tough. We know that you have told us in the world we will have trouble. And Lord, many of us here tonight come with lots of stuff, lots of trouble, lots of things going on in our lives that we find difficult. So Lord, at this moment, we just want to lay them at your feet. We cast our burdens and our cares on you. Because Lord, we know that to follow you is to be saved, to know salvation, and to be destined to sit with you on your throne. So Lord, we praise you and ask that you would help us in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.